0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyas Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Rob Rizak, who is a palliative care physician at Cleveland, Ohio. One of his favourite questions to ask patients is, what brings you joy? When we explored the consequence of asking that question of one of his patients, we discovered that this is an extraordinarily gifted doctor. We present... Dr. Rob Razak. You're very welcome to the show, Rab Razak. We're honored to be speaking with you today. And I want to start with a story that I heard about you, and I'd like you to put the ending to the story. The story is that you had a 19-year-old patient, palliative care patients, who was a fan of Downton Abbey. And it turned out that you discovered that she was a fan of Downton Abbey and you wrote to the show. Can you tell us what happened next? Sure.
1: So Martina, her parents will give me permission to say her name. She was two years into her diagnosis, I think, with gastroesophageal cancer. And uh, when I first saw her, it was on a weekend when I was on call. And I go in to see her, and I was called to help her with her symptoms. And we start talking about what's important for her. And one of my questions is always, so tell me, uh, what brings you joy? and And immediately, she went from being sick to lighting up and says, oh, my God, I love Downton Abbey. And it wasn't what I was expecting. (laughs) And she was on my mind after that. And I think that question sort of opened up a connection for her and I to uh, me seeing her as a human being, as a person who has a life, who's got desires, who has joys. And it started... It started a connection from both me and with her, as well as her parents. Lovely, lovely, wonderful people who I still keep in contact with. And she was on my mind for for that entire week. And I was thinking, there's got to be something more I can do. And months earlier, there was another patient who actually i would never missed. She was 80-something years old and said, I've never missed an episode of Young and the Restless. So I looked up Young and the Restless with the soap opera in America. I've never missed an episode. So I, I tracked down, don't know the rest of this, and, and then uh, someone wrote an article about it, and and then I contacted them, and they gave me the name of the publicist. And so I said, you know what, let me start there. So I just Googled Johnson Abbey Publicist, got someone's contact, and then we started a conversation. And I said, hey, um, I'm here at Johns Hopkins, and I've got this amazing woman who I'm taking care of, a young woman who's very sick. And she's one of your biggest fans. And is there anything you can do? And and I kept it open ended like that. And a week later, they responded and said, you know, we're actually in America right now. We're gonna I'll be back in the UK very soon, and we'll get back to you. And several days after that, I got an email saying, by the way, here's a here's a message for for her. Would you be able to share that with her? And I I saw it and I cried and immediately. Went running to her room, and I texted my one of my colleagues and said, "Hey, I'm I'm going to her room. Meet me there." And by the time I get there, I get a text back saying we just discharged her yesterday. So I emailed her mom and said, "Would you be able to share this with Martina?" And she got to see it, and it was a personal message from two of the cast members, and it was about 90 seconds long of just warmth and love, and and I'll never forget that feeling of joy, of hope, there are the people out there who actually care enough and additional time to send her a personalized message. I thought that was beautiful.
0: It is very beautiful. And there are moments like this that make make the job particularly special, the job of doctoring. So I was going to ask you, you went into a part of medicine that is about dying and about people who are not going to make it Largely through their illness. Why that? Why not something more heroic? Like you know, why didn't you become an intensivist or a, a surgeon or, or why aren't you delivering babies? Why not? Well, I got into medicine because my grandpa had metastatic
1: prostate cancer, and otherwise, I'd be very rich in Silicon Valley right now. And so, I thought I, I'd be an oncologist. And after training, it just oncology oncology just didn't work out for me. And I worked as an uh, as a hospitalist where I'd have these meaningful conversations with people when I admit them to the hospital when they were really sick and talked to them about things that they hoped for, things that were important for them. We talked about what we call code status. And I was very fond of those conversations. I thought it was it was connecting because there's so much in medicine that we do we do to people, procedures that we do for people. And that wasn't where my heart was. My heart's always been a connection and love. And, and so back in training there, I remember my most dearest memories of training was were sitting down with patients and family and having some of these meaningful conversations. And so that stuck. And in, you know, in the first, first four years of my career, I have a lot of those discussions as a hospitalist, and for a year I did hospitalist and intensivist work at night at a at a, at a community hospital in Los Angeles. Uh, that last year, and then when I went over to one of these larger academic centers in Los Angeles, I that's when I first heard of palliative care because I never heard of that heard of palliative care prior to that, and said, so, "Oh wow, that's." That's an interesting field, And I worked closely with them. And then about a year later, my boss came up to me and said, Hey, Rob, you've got this real good skill set with patients. And the palliative care team, they're short on staff. So you could, they could could get the help from you if you're interested and do some extra work with them. He said, Sure, you no, know, give the shot. And I did my first shift and I said, Oh, my God, this is what I've been looking for all this time. And then my world opened up. <laughs> work was much more fun or connecting, where I left work and felt happy, like I did something. About 98% of the time that I need work, I'm leaving with a smile. And it's not only patients who are dying. It's not only that. It's a lot of people who are suffering in some way or other, right? And I'm helping them live. I'm helping them figure out what's important. I'm helping them think about their legacy. And um, sitting down with them and having a, a conversation like we're having now.
0: I can see it. I can see it in your eyes when you're talking that this is something that you really get a lot from. And I, I get it. And when I talk to medical students and they, we talk about a career pathway, we often end up talking about burnout, the challenges of being in medicine. I would imagine, particularly in the US, from what I hear from my colleagues in the US, where you are spending your time filling forms and signing dockets. And chasing the dollar, which you have to in order to earn a living, and that takes away from the experience. And it's relentless, isn't it? Particularly today in the in the pandemic situation, where so many of them are working day and night, literally. You've talked a lot about mindfulness and the importance of mindfulness. Is that part of the strategy for staying engaged in the way that you are? For me, it is. Yeah,
1: and and what I recommend is. Find what works for you. And and so what I do is I do, I have my own mindfulness practices that I do. I don't always do it. And then when I don't do it, I feel all over the place. And when I do it, I'm centered. I'm much more productive and happier. I'm calmer. Yeah, it takes discipline to make, you know, to continue to do it, it's sort of like exercise, right? And here you're exercising the mind. And so i I started this about five years ago, where a friend of mine became very famous and said, Hey, I, I, I've attended one of these workshops uh, with this guy named Tony Robbins, and it prepared me for this morning in my life. And it just helped me process things really well. And he said, Do you want to go? I said, Let's do it. So about six of us went there, both our spouses and uh, traditional friends. And during that workshop, it was a two and a half day seminar. I didn't know what I was getting into. (laughs) And during that exercise, one of the exercises we did was where he he briefly talked about mindfulness, but he didn't call it mindfulness. And he let us do like a 25-minute exercise, which was a mindfulness exercise for me. And I remember crying. I remember just reflecting on my life. And then all of a sudden, things got lighter. I felt lighter. I felt that peace and said, this can't be happening. I thought that was just some mumbo-jumbo. So after that, I got fascinated with mindfulness and just started meeting up on it. And so, wow, there's actually something to this. And so, instead of doing the traditional mindfulness work from uh, John Kabat-Zinn and other folks, I, I used a lot of Tony's, uh, one of his exercises, and. Initially, did that with my patients for about 15 minutes, and then realized, wow, that's a lot of time. <laughs> I, I need to be doing medical stuff. And but it was so therapeutic for a lot of my patients. And then I said, okay, let me see if I can tweak this down. I've got to be able to tweak this down. And so I tweaked it down to about a three to four minute exercise, and I had similar results. I haven't done a randomized control trial on this, but I've seen it with my with the patients I care for, and I'd say about. Seventy-five to eighty percent of them or their family members get some benefit, and I pre framed the conversation with them about what we're going to do, and and so often I you know I get the manliest man, and they're like yeah yeah that's all nonsense, and then I you know, I talk about like great athletes who do mindfulness and Seattle uh, Seattle Seahawks it's an American football team who get mindfulness and Google. They do mindfulness. And then I said, nah, nah, when I first did, I cried like a baby and it's okay. And so I have normalized it and then I need them to a three to four minute exercise Then I play some music to it and the music sort of is calming and then they listen to my voice and I guide them through an exercise and I see how they respond and I have tissue available just in case. Remember, I cried like a baby and majority of the time they're just like, oh wow, I, I didn't realize I needed it. And a lot of times it's because I do it because they have anxiety or some other symptoms that are concerning or they have difficulty sleeping. And so nowadays I record it for them. And I said, if you want to use this, you can use this on your phone. And then I recommend many different apps. There's so many apps out there. Find what works for you. And there are many, so many websites out there that where like UCLA has a mindfulness awareness research center and Berkeley has something similar and so I just you know direct them there. Our hospital has something similar and guide them there and have them find what works for them. And and the way I think about it is sort of like unstacking and where there's all these there's all this trauma and feelings and disappointment and all these emotions that sort of Gather up and clump together, and they keep us weighing down. And when we're able to process it, we're able to remove all this weight off us, of, and people feel the difference. Mindfulness has been shown to be helpful for anxiety, depression, pain, fatigue, or sleep. And so, and the side effects are just don't do mind, don't close your eyes and do mindfulness while you're driving. Right, <laughs> that can be a problem. And so, uh, and even if you're driving, there's mindfulness you can actually do where you have your eyes open and you're, you have some breathing techniques you can be doing. So there's so many different ways, so many different things you can do. And some of these exercises, I do them with my colleagues at work. Like today, I was sitting down with, I was in the ICU, and I walked over to the heart failure intensive care unit. And we had a difficult discussion with a family member. The patient's family member and and the nurse and I were talking, and the three other nurses were just like, "Yeah, it's been really hard lately." And I said, "Well, you want to you want to try a quick exercise? It'll take you a few minutes. Uh, that just it helps you feel better." And so we we went into this room, were physically distant, and I played the music and guided them, and it was you know, just over three minutes, and they're like, "Wow, I feel a difference." And so, you know, I think the power of, there's so much power to breathing and focusing and taking time out to for yourself. It, it, I find it makes me
0: so much easier. Were you introduced to, to this in medical school? Were you introduced to this as a resident? Were you introduced to this during your training or even in your early part of your career? I suspect, as you're saying, probably not. And yet we're producing doctors that we expect to perform at the level that you are now performing, where you are actually managing to connect with folk. When I'm in that palliative care unit, I don't want a doctor who is ticking a box somewhere. I want a doctor who's giving me their full attention and are in control of their emotions so that regardless of what pressures they're under, they're able to deal with my issue and nothing else. We don't do this very well in medicine. Mm-hmm. And yet we know that the art of doctoring involves both the doctor and the patient. And we forget the doctor because we all talk about the patient and the patient's needs. We don't talk about our own needs. Has that been your experience? That has.
1: And and the way I think about it is, you know, it's, it's like a car. You need you need some degree of fuel or a charge. You keep moving. And if you're on an empty tank, or no charge, you're not going to go anywhere, right? And so I look at it as healing myself, healing my colleagues, healing my patients and their caregivers, their families we are going to take care of them. And I remind them this is something for you to meet their needs. You need to take care of yourself; otherwise, it's not going to work. And I agree, we weren't taught a lot of this in med school. And nowadays, some are. And I think that'll. That'll help build better doctors and nurses and -hmm. other healthcare professionals. And I think there's so much change that needs to happen in healthcare that we there's so much opportunity to make things better. And I think we need to study what those things are. If we see some correlations, see if we can study them. And in the interest of not only our patients, but ourselves.
0: You're right, because if we don't look after ourselves, we are really not much good to anybody else. Yeah, more errors,
1: right? More lawsuits, you name it. There's so much to burn out that's there. And so when I was actually on the East Coast at Hopkins, what we recognized, you know, we've got some of the best residents in the country and in the world. And so initially, set up after hours a session for them about once a month. And so we had out of the interim medicine residents, there were probably hundred and forty or so, hundred forty to hundred and fifty residents. You know, about, you know, sometimes five, ten would show up. Sometimes one or two would show up. And it was like at five o'clock where people want to go home and and then right the year I was I was leaving before I knew I was leaving Hopkins. We did we did this exercise where we did did it during workout instead of a, a noon conference where, where they're learning something they're learning something different and and so we created these sessions where we would we call theme it's a town hall so the first you know 15 minutes would be a town hall 15 20 minutes with the residents and then after that we'd engage them in mindfulness exercise so it was called theme down hall engaging mindfulness exercises and and from there we learned a lot of different things about the residents, and saw that wow they're they're in the ICUs and there's all these things happening to them to their patients and they're going home crying about it and they feel alone. They're the only ones going through that, right? <laughs> no, they're not. And so from that we created these sessions, reflection sessions once a week. Or interns who were going to the night shift. And half the time, many of us were in tears, talking about the situations they were in. And even the chief residents would would attend that. And they would talk about their experiences. And and it was very therapeutic. And then after that, another thing we learned was that nurses, some of the nurses, many of the nurses and residents, they weren't getting along. And a lot of that was because they were. Dynamics in terms of where they were, where they lived and where they were located, that is, and realized, wow, they don't know the nurses and the nurses don't know them. Let's figure out a way to do this. So there's this organization IDO that uses design thinking to have conversations. And they created something called creative tension, where you'd be in a large room and you'd ask a question. And one of the questions I asked was, Right, for those of you who, if there's a patient who's in pain, if you're someone who wants to prescribe or give an opiate, go on that side. And for those of you who want to slap on a lidocaine patch and give some something for cramping, go on that side, right? And in the group I was in, the nurses went into the opiate side, and the residents went to the other side, and then they had to explain why they were standing there. And the closer they were to the middle, you know, they were somewhere in between. And so nurses are like, We're at we're at bedside next to the patient and we see them suffering. We wanted that pain control. And the resident said, You know, there was this one case I gave, you know, some opiates to, and they didn't do well. And I still feel guilty about it. Until so you heard each other's side. There was a dialogue. And through that they had conversation again and got to know one another. And shortly after that exercise, that same day, one of the residents texted me and said, hey, Rob, thank you so much. That was really helpful. It turned out there was a nurse who called me about a patient who was in pain. And what we did was I actually called her up, we had a discussion, and we came to a conclusion together. And I thought that was really powerful, just these small acts of listening, of hearing one another, and having a relationship of getting to know someone can really impact how we how we do business how we care for others and that common understanding that common love that common purpose is all met when we're together when we are when we hold respect for one another when we hear each other's perspective that's when we can really do that
0: it it's and resonates and i relate to that experience the need to connect with people who you think know less than you do, often you end up learning from them when you realize that actually they know just as much as you do. In fact, a little bit more because they they are with the patient all day, every day. That's so true. So, Rob, where to from here? Where is your career taking you in the next 10 years?
1: Before I answer that question, one, one thing I want to say is, like, nurses have taught me how to be a better doctor. They they're, many of them are my friends, many of them are my mentors, like Trish Trish Davidson. They they helped me become a better human being and a better doctor. And I've learned so much from them and I hope to continue to work with them and teach them and learn from them also. And I think if we have that respect for one another, we can really provide great health care.
0: Yes, I agree and I echo that and that in my book in the Art of Doctoring I talk about Eileen Dorley, who is the first nurse that I worked with. She was charge nurse on the first ward that I worked on. And I owe my career to Eileen Dorley. And I happily admit to that. Uh, It was the three months that I spent with Eileen Dorley that made all the difference to my ability, not just to prescribe the right drugs and do the right procedures, but to ask the right questions. You you had a question about what's next for me. I'm at this
1: academic institution where... You know, for palliative care, we're way back where I was at my pre a couple institutions ago, and that was over about a decade ago. We're still behind them, it's 2020. And so, at this institution, one of my goals is to really help improve people's communication skills, to help them recognize the value of palliative care, not only for individual patients, but as in population health, to be able to have protocols available on how to communicate because communication is a procedure. These communication skills that we use in palliative care, it's a procedure. Just like, you know, someone who needs an appendectomy, a surgeon has done that procedure hundreds if not thousands of times. And it has a framework, it requires practice, it requires feedback, and then it requires refining. And these conversations about what's meaningful for people, there is a framework, there's great tools out there, like Vital Talk, with the Harvard's Serious Illness Conversation Guide, like so many things out there, they're powerful. And again, those are some of the technical skills, uh, those those are some of the framework. and with that, it requires some of these additional tools that we have that's in here in our hearts, and we display them. I think I have so many interests <laughs> that um, sometimes when I'm not centered, as I mentioned earlier, that I just I just grab that thing, and especially when you're overworked. Right now, we're developing. Um, we just got approval for a fellowship program uh, that starts in July, twenty twenty-one. I'm super excited about that. We're going to train doctors and. Along with that, we're going to have nurse practitioners who are going to be fellows also. We're trying to get approval for. And so we're developing these clinicians to be masters of this. And we don't just want to develop great clinicians. We want to develop leaders and giving them the tools to be able to think that way, to think about population health, to think about health systems and what's needed and what can be improved. Because what we have in healthcare, not enough. There are some great things that people are doing in healthcare. At the same time, there are some things that maybe need not ought to be done. And I think it's important to have a conversation with patients and families and healthcare professionals about what some of those things are. You know, if, some, if a procedure is going to work, then if people want it, it should be offered. But if procedures are not going to work, why are we giving people false hope? offering things that we know are not going to work and that requires a conversation and that requires reflection for ourselves as to why we're doing things.
0: Rapprizak, your patients are extraordinarily blessed to have you looking after them. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It's been, it's been an honor being here. Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: The Journal of Health Design. Better Health by Design. Visit us at the